episode of a podcast called It Was All Worth It. It's a podcast that talks about the things that people are passionate about and the things that they use to drive their lives and build their lives around. My name's Eamon Dillon. This is, for the moment anyway, a limited series podcast, meaning there's only six episodes. But who knows, maybe in the future, if it's popular enough, I might do a second season. And by then, maybe I'll even have thought of a decent name. I originally wanted to call this For What It's Worth, which I thought was a really cool name, but there's already a podcast called that. It's about investing or something. The use of that word was very deliberate, because this podcast is about something that's always fascinated me, and that's value. When I say value, I don't mean monetary value, I mean the things that people really value. If you're listening to this on my website, which you probably are, you've probably seen that almost everything, all the content on the site deals with that theme. I think like a lot of people who have the privilege of growing up in a rich country, as we grow up, there seems like there's an awful lot of options that we can choose as regards what we want to do with our lives. But often the choices presented to us, they're not really things that speak to us. That's a problem that I can really identify with. And I know that lots of other people really identify with it too. So I really admire people who find that one thing that they love so much that they just say, I'm going to go do this and then just build their whole life around that. All the people I've interviewed for this podcast are basically in that category. Some of them do the thing they're passionate about for a living and some of them they're just doing it in their free time. In some cases, they were things that they went out and sought. In some cases, they were things that just seemed to find them. So this is the first ever episode. In this one, I'm going to talk about something I've been really interested in for a long, long time. And that is, of all things, Ulster Unionism. That's a very weird thing for an Irish person to be fascinated by. It comes from the fact that when I was a kid, the troubles in Northern Ireland were just about finishing up. And back then, I was paying very little attention to them. They were on the news sometimes. And I think for a lot of people growing up far from the border, it's like the troubles were happening on a different continent, like they were happening in Israel or in Beirut. It was only when I got a little bit older and realized that that was happening less than 100 miles up the road from me, I started to think about it. It was really hard for me to get my head around that that was happening on the same island that I was growing up on. It was really interesting to me because, as you probably know, the Irish are generally a very well-liked nationality around the world. Like, There's lots of people who have very little claim to being Irish but like to pretend that they are. And it seemed really crazy to me that the only people in the whole world who saw being Irish as a bad thing and something they wanted to deny were about a million people who actually live in the north of Ireland. I spent a long time wanting to talk to someone who came from that background about why they felt so strongly about it. Considering all the trouble that Northern Ireland has experienced for the last hundred years, it's obviously something that people really feel very, very strongly about, and that's not something you can dismiss. Now, the person I got to talk about this was very far from the typical kind of person you'd find from an Ulster Protestant background. Her name is Linda Irvine, and she runs the only Irish language class in East Belfast. So the driving passion in this interview is kind of a double whammy, as we talk not only about the issues of national identity, but also how on earth a woman from her background could cross the cultural divide to the point where she ended up making a language that's typically seen as belonging to an enemy into the force that she's ended up using to shape her life and give herself her career. This interview is one of three that were recorded back in what we could now call the before times back in 2019. And Linda and I actually met and did this face to face back when that was still a thing. So welcome. I'm here with Linda Irvine, who is the Irish language officer for the Taurus Project, which is run out of the Skynos building in East Belfast. It's the only Irish language project that's run in a unionist area. Linda is also the sister-in-law of the late David Irvine, who was the former leader of the Progressive Unionist Party and one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement. So, Linda, welcome. Hello. Thank you. So we'll start off with something a bit general. Tell me a little bit about yourself. 
Okay, I come from this area on the Newtonarge Road, um, just a few streets away from here where the, the um, Scanless building is situated. I was born here um, in the late, um, late 1961. My family are Protestant, but they are not actually Unionists. My family are Communists. I know there are Protestant Republicans or Protestant Nationalists. They're in a very small minority, but there are a few. I think I feel like Northern Irish identity is so tied up with either one of those two concepts, Unionist or Nationalist, that to hear of someone who doesn't or didn't or whatever identify with either is it's very new for me. I've never actually heard that before. And I guess because you don't live in Northern Ireland, communism would have been very niche. But there are a lot of people within Northern Ireland, both from the nationalist community and from the unionist community, who wouldn't identify totally with what I suppose there, there's a, a feeling that they should. So I personally know a lot of people from the, the Protestant community who would say, no, I'm not unionist or I don't vote unionist um, or, you know, they may not be nationalist but they wouldn't be unionist either. And I know a lot of people within the nationalist community who don't sign up to the, the, the kind of politics there either. So I think from an outside viewpoint, people tend to see Northern Ireland as very green and orange, and there is a lot of green and orange. But within communities, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of variety. The communist worldview is like essentially kind of a one-world government view? So, well, they were they were socialist, and I mean they're all members of the Communist Party. I I never belonged to it myself. My grandparents were members of the Communist Party. Um, my father's still a member of the Communist Party. My uncle's still a member of the Communist Party. And as I say, it was just something that was always a backdrop to my life. I suppose as a child, I would have recognised Lenin before I'd have recognised Jesus Christ. You know. And forgive me if I just don't know enough about the idea of socialism here. Under, under what idea of national identity or government would they have seen their future of Northern Ireland? Is it a British communist country or an Irish communist country? Or? I think they, and I don't know how they would feel today, but I think at one time they would have certainly been in favour of United Ireland, but only because they wanted to see a socialist Ireland. Um, my grandfather was an Englishman, so there certainly was no anti-Britishness. And, um, and I think that was one of the things that my uncle would have struggled very much with, um, you know, the, this, this anti-British attitude and no room for Britishness. Yeah, I suppose that's a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about. This is obviously an area that's steeped in unionism. It's probably like 99, 98, 95% unionists around here anyway, surely. How, how did you feel as a child being part of that community? Did you feel different based on your family's political views or did you feel totally accepted and totally welcome and there was no difference between you and your friends? When I was a young child, I had no idea there was any difference. Yeah. Um, as I say, my grandfather was the secretary of the Soviet Friendly Society and used to take me down to the Russian boats and things like that. And, you know, Russia was always talked about in a very positive way and I, I would have been shown photographs of Russia and sort of the modernity of it and whatnot. So I didn't know there was an issue. Um, the Troubles came in 69 and even at that young age, I was about seven or eight I think when the Troubles started, you realised right away there was some sort of threat and the family felt they had to keep their heads down. And as I got older, I became more and more aware of that and I suppose also, you know, we were surrounded by a sea of sectarianism which we didn't share and we didn't feed into, you know. So at a very young age, you realised that you just had to keep your opinions to yourself. What do you remember from your childhood times when people came out and really felt a part of the community? 
hard to say. I suppose really the bands really would have been the big thing, and um, that's not just the twelfth of July, but that would have been Easter, you know. So parades, sort of parades, I suppose. I suppose sometimes protests and things, though we wouldn't have been taking part in that. But that seemed to galvanise the community. I know you said you wouldn't wouldn't have been taking part in the protests, but say the the band culture, which I mean some people would find very threatening, but. Did you get involved in that? Was that something that was kind of like essentially family yeah, fun? That yeah, you were... yeah. I mean, one of the big events of the year, which I loved as a child, was the 11th night. So that's the bonfires. And, um, you know, as soon as school finished for the holidays, you'd have been collecting bonfire wood. And um, I'm supposed to be what's called a real prod because I got a nail stuck up into my feet running about collecting bonfire wood. That's one of the... the... That's exactly the first I want to talk to you about. Those are one of the like, key characteristics of being also yeah, Protestant, yeah. is a bonfire nail. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, running about as a child with wee soft sandals and then bits of wood with big rusty nails. So, of course, like a lot of kids, I stood on one of them right up into my foot. Okay. So, um, you know, but just that was one of the most exciting times of the year. That was only second only to Christmas because mm-hmm. nobody told you to come in on the 11th night. You could stay out as long as you wanted, you know. And um, and it was a real night of excitement. We, as I say, we loved the whole build up to it, and we loved the actual night. We would have went to see the bands too, though. I, you know, I wasn't really, wasn't overly bothered about the bands. I found it a wee bit boring, probably. When I got to be a teenager, I liked the bands then. I loved the bands then because that was where you met boys and you know all that nonsense, you know, sort of a thing. So to me, growing up, even though my family's politics were very different. You know, you still, you very much engaged with the bands. And even my member and my dad taking us when we were very wee to see the bands and things like that. So it, it was just part and parcel of what you did. But like, even though you're from a perspective where you could perhaps look at the two communities a little bit more on the outside, maybe. Did you feel at that time when you were young growing up, there was a real sense of separation from the, the nationalist community? But was there a sense of like, we're over here and there, over there? When I was very young, as I say, I was born at the end of 61, the Troubles came in 69. Prior to the Troubles and even at the very beginning of the Troubles, this was one community and it was mixed. And um, probably more Catholics at this end, more Protestants at that end, but it would have been, it would have been mixed. When we were children, we would have played down in the Catholic side and because there was a park, there used to be an old park on the Newton Arch Road and they built a new park in, in Beachfield Street and as children we used to go down and play because it was modern, it was new. We didn't, I don't think we thought about people down there being Catholics, I don't think it struck us, I mean I was about seven years old, six or seven. What I do remember though was my nanny one time calling me back and getting me to take my socks off before she let me go down because the socks are all red, white and blue around them, okay. you know. Yeah. And my cousin was playing and somebody took out a knife and threatened him with a knife, you know, like a pen knife, you know, because mm-hmm. he was a Protestant. Now that would put us off and down, you know, just, you know, kids like. But you could have still done that at that time and that changed later, we just couldn't have done that, you know. After 69, when that people yeah, stopped going through. Yeah. I think it's easier for me not that I've experienced it, but it's easy to understand how those kind of divisions grow. When conflict is arising and stuff like that, I think I'm always more curious about how those identities maybe coexisted beforehand. Do you remember how people around you viewed Catholics, probably during the Troubles? And what I mean by that is not just people saying, oh, they're violent, they're dangerous, but like, 
Or were there any kind of characteristics or stereotypes or things? Well, it was just a pure hatred of them. It was just pure sectarian hatred, distrust that, you know, they were, they were different. They were... Um, but not based on anything, no reasons they were different because blah. Well, I can't just, just say, I think it was just a senseless hatred. And, and I think people's attitude was just because they didn't, they didn't know Catholics, they didn't, you know, there was just, just, just no understanding whatsoever. People didn't get the opportunity to engage with each other, you know, the communities became more and more divided. So it was, I suppose, fear of the unknown very much. Here's one thing that I've, I've never understood was that to be Irish, one of the leading characteristics of being Irish and the way we look at ourselves is that we're, we're fairly harmless in that we're people who... I'm saying that both both in the positive way and in the kind of slightly derogatory way that we don't we, we don't mean any we're, we're cracked like we don't mean mm-hmm. harm to anybody we're very non-threatening as a as a race and that it's very hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of you know I see people here burning Irish flags in the way that I'm only used to really seeing that being done from like flags from powerful countries like people burning the American yeah. flag or something countries which would be have more of an impact on the world stage, might be more militaristic. It's really hard for me to get around the, the kind of the way we look at ourselves and how harmless we view ourselves that a certain group of people see us as being very harmful. So Well I, I, I think I could explain that and it's not a view you share, but it's I, I, I can understand um, where people are coming from. Sure. I think first thing to say is that I personally and I'm I'm probably in a minority but I'm certainly not the only one. I'm Irish. Mm-hmm. Of course I'm Irish, I'm born in the island of Ireland, of course we're all Irish, even though we don't recognise it, mm-hmm. many of us, we are Irish. And people burn flags and all the rest of it, and I think it's fear. I think they're frightened of being enveloped by the South. They have grown up with an idea that the South is the enemy. I think when partition came, then what happened was the South rejected any of its British history, and the North rejected any of its Irish history. And I think that created even more and more division and created a, a culture of anti-Irishness and seeing Irishness as being alien, being different. And I mean, I some days it's like living in the asylum, being part of Northern Ireland, being a Protestant in Northern Ireland, because I'm British. I'm, you know, that, that's who I am politically. But as I said, I, I'm born on the island of Ireland and this is part of Ireland. And not politically Ireland, but it's culturally, geographically, historic. culturally, historically, yeah. And yet, I mean, I, I could sit in a room with 10 people who would tell me that I was wrong. Let's let's go back to the 60s and 70s first before we bring up today. What did they, what, what, what were they afraid of? What did they think was going to happen to them? Well, I think there's a fear, as I say, of being overrun. There's a fear... I suppose for the Protestant community, there's always been that, you know, that, that siege mentality. Mm-hmm. I suppose they don't trust Britain. They have no reason to trust Britain, but certainly see that at the minute. God only knows yes. where Brexit's going to go. And they feel in a minority. Um, you know, they're majority here, but they're a minority in Ireland. And, you know, history did show them that when they were a minority, they were vulnerable. And I suppose they don't want to be in that situation again. So they... they they have this fear of, um, you know, becoming part of Ireland. They have to reject that at all costs and hold on to their, their Britishness. Even though, you know, if you look at their own history, their own ancestry, probably most of them are converts originally, you know, their ancestry. And they're Gaelic, Irish. Yeah, I, didn't I know mean, that. I didn't know that. 
lots. I mean, if you look in the early Presbyterian church, there's loads of Native Irish names, you know. A lot of them are Scottish Gaels, you know. So, I mean, being a Protestant and being a Catholic in Northern Ireland is a very mixed bag. You know, you're a mongrel. And you can see it in our surnames because lots of Protestants have Irish surnames. Lots of Catholics have English, Anglicized. Scottish, Anglicised, you know, um, surnames. So it's, it's just a very mixed bag. But sadly, you know, people have divided themselves into these separate camps and um, it's very hard to, to challenge that. Now, there are many, many people who don't share those those um, feelings and, you know, who are a lot more liberal or there's a lot more crossover, but they don't maybe shout as loudly <laughs> as some of the other people, unfortunately. I did, I did think that often about Northern Ireland, that it's very... If you're a liberal unionist or you're a conservative... Uh, nationalist, it might be very hard to find someone to vote for, that your your political, yeah. personal politics yeah. are kind of submerged by the, yeah. the identity well, politics. The nice thing is the last election, I will see what this one brings, the last election the middle ground is starting to come up for the mm. Green Party and the Alliance Party starting to increase in votes and I, I'm, I'm hoping that this time because of the stalemate we find ourselves in with the two big parties and the num- numerous scandals that you know we'll, we'll see a growth in that as well but as I say it remains the same it's it's interesting that no matter what the two big parties do they just seem to create more polarisation which give them more votes um, another issue we have here is a very very large number of people who don't vote and they just don't engage with the, the, the political system at all you know because they're I suppose they're just so fed up with it for you so so um, how how and when and why did you start to get interested in the Irish language and, and where did you learn to speak it? I was introduced to it. It was a um, cross community event here in East Belfast Mission. This is a Methodist church, mm-hmm. and I was part of a cross community women's group. So that was women from the Short Strand, women from here. I was just a six week taster, and I'd never never came across the language before. I had no engagement with it. Couldn't have spoken a word of it. So I just fell in love with it when I, I came on it and I decided to start learning it. I'm no natural language learner. I struggled a lot, but anyway. Did you did you identify with it because you felt a sense of connection to it or just because you really liked it? I don't know what it was. I didn't feel a connection to it because I, I regarded it as a Catholic language, mm. you know, because that's how it seemed to me. Of course, I was very wrong about that. But there was just something, something about the phraseology of it. I just found it interesting. Um, I suppose, I suppose it's when somebody's never been allowed to kind of do something. Maybe that's, you know, it gives them a wee, wee interest. I don't know. But um, it was just, just something, something appealing to me about it. I certainly didn't think I would end up going to university or end up running an Irish language centre. But I just wanted to learn a few words of it. At that time, I didn't know that it even was in her place names and her surnames. I mean, that was another. You didn't. You didn't no know. No okay. idea. You know, and, and I always think that's really sad that you know I was born in Belfast. I've spent my whole life in Belfast, and you know I've travelled very, very little. But I never knew that it was Belfast. Yeah, because nobody ever allowed me to know that. I mean, I I do talks on place names now. I do talks about the language. And I remember um, one day giving a, a talk to a men's group, and this man said to me, and I said, well, you know, Bell Forrest, you Bell Forrest, you Sandbank Forward, and all the rest of it. And he said, no, dear, you're wrong. 
They said the reason Belfast is called Belfast is because Keith Billy had a horse called Bell who could run very fast. People here don't have the first clue about the Irish language. They regard it as foreign, they regard it as south of the border, they regard it as Catholic, they regard it as no link. And I mean, you could get somebody who lives in the most Irish language sounding place with an Irish name. Shankill. Uh-huh. And they will stand there and say no. No connection. I saw I saw a video with you on this, and you were speaking about the way that a lot of Protestants from this part of the world would have spoken Irish, say, a hundred years or more at this stage mm-hmm. back. Yeah. I was surprised about that, but I think you may have actually explained it a little bit already that there is so much. In, there was was so much historical like intermixing between people yeah, on both sides. Yeah. Well, do you mean? Well, I mean, what we did, and we're actually working on it now. We, we've been looking at the census for people who had listed themselves as being Irish speakers living in this area and either small in number but again it's because the 32 counties of Ireland are represented by people who moved to this area for work so it's wherever they came from in Ireland but I mean people from Scotland came over who were Gaelic speakers people were living here people converted there's you know people intermingled intermarried so there's numerous reasons why people would have been Irish speakers and been Protestants. That's beginning to make an awful lot more sense mm-hmm. to me already. So tell me a little about the, the tourist project. What, what was it set up to achieve and how has it been going so far? Well, it really came about because there was an interest with people within the, the local community um, who said, we want to learn Irish. So that, that's why it was started. Um, but really, I suppose the aim of it was to raise awareness of the, the Protestant history of the language. We didn't want to kind of set up the Protestant alternative. We wanted to take our place within the Irish language community. Yeah. And I think we've done that very, very successfully. And we do things like we have two bus tours every month, the Connolly one, Connolly was the last Gaelic Lord of this area, and the other one, the, the Gaelic East Belfast tour, which um, talks about all the kind of Gaelic history in this area, which is masses of, you know, which people don't realise, plus both the ancient and modern. We run now about 14 classes a week. Last year we signed up over 270 people from all over. Now it started off being very, very local. Now they come from everywhere. The majority of learners, I think last year it was about 65 to 70%. Not sure what the, the makeup is this year um, from people from the unionist community. And um, as well as, say, the very broad number of people, people are now, you know, really getting the language. So for this year, five people who happened to be all Protestants went off to university to do, to do degrees in Irish. Young people or older people? All ages. Um, but I mean to go to university. Yeah, yeah. So I think the youngest one, he's 23. Mm-hmm. And then with another one, she would be in her 30s. Another one, she's in her early 40s. Another guy, I think he's in his 40s. And another one in their 50s. So it's a range, range of ages. Obviously, this wouldn't have been possible 20, 30, 40 years ago, not a chance. No. So are, are most people, are they like, that's cool? That's a nice idea. It's not for me. Or do they not like it? Are they kind of a bit sniffy about it? There's a very mixed reaction. Um, You know, there's there's a lot of people from the unionist community who are interested. I do talks out in the community. And again, the majority of them would be with with groups within unionism. And I think a lot of people have a curiosity. um, And that's why they come to learn or that's why they want to talk. So there is certainly a curiosity. I think there is... Probably the majority of people there would be what I could only call a disinterest, I suppose, that they, they just can't relate to it, they don't understand. They they feed into a lot of the myth and that's not 
you know, really hostile myth, but their attitude would be, well, you know, it's dead language. Um, nobody speaks it. It's got nothing to do with me. It has no connection to me. Why would I be interested in that? You know, you sort yourself out, like why? You know, mm-hmm. but actually, Dismissive. very dis- yeah. yeah, that mm-hmm. would be it. And um, and then there's a minority of people who would be out and out hostile, absolutely hostile, who feel threatened by it, who say it's offensive, who you know would be would be really quite angry. But a lot of the things that I, you know, I interest me is that when you get the chance to talk to people and you give them a bit more information, you know, a lot of them will say, I didn't know that. Why yeah. did nobody ever tell me that? The only Irish that know is Chucky Arla, the only Irish speakers that know are people like Marching or Miller. They they just don't know that other world exists. So I, I think not everybody, but I think the majority of people are actually rational and reasonable. And when you when you present something to them and present a reasonable argument to them, a lot of them will either be interested or be like, you know, still not my cup of tea, but that's fine, I, yeah. you know. And in fact, can see the injustice in many ways, you know. On the topic of reasonability or reasonableness, this is the, the question or leading into the questions that the whole thing is really about for me. I'll start with you and I'll, I'll bring it out broader. So you've already said that you identify as being Irish, but can you explain your idea about national identity for yourself, who you are, where you're from, what you are? Well, I'm, I'm born in Belfast and I've never ever thought of myself as anything but Irish. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever sat me down and told me I was Irish, but I always knew I was Irish as opposed to because my granddad was English and my nanny and granddad lived a few streets away from here and I would have spent a lot of time with them growing up and any time there was a row, and you know the, the rows were always quite comedic, really. To be honest, my nanny would have called him a bloody Englishman, yeah. bloody Englishman, and which he would have laughed at. And we always knew that he was wrong because he was English, and we were right because we were Irish. And that um, it, it makes sense to me based on that background and the fact that you had those interactions with someone from a different country. Why that sense of identity was a bit more. Kind of clearer. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I don't feel on my own. I mean, my husband Brian is there next door, and he grew up um, a couple of streets away from here. Mm. He's my second husband. My first husband grew up across the road there. They both saw themselves Irish. My first husband was in the Irish Rangers, which is the British Army. Yeah. And on St Patrick's Day, they got their shamrock. I mean, on his army papers, it said his name, it said his nationality, and it said British stroke Irish. Is that unusual for people around here? I think there's a modern idea of we're not Irish. I never saw that as a child. That's a new thing that uh-huh. grew up in the I think troubles. that's a new thing that has grown up. Yeah. Um, you know, we always celebrated St. Patrick's Day. And also I find that no matter how orange you are here, you become greener when you go away, you know. So of course we're Irish. And a lot of people will say they're Irish, but a lot of people say, no, I'm not Irish. But it's almost like, you know... To me, it's, it is a form of insanity, and it's also saying if I say I'm not Irish, I'm saying I'm an interloper. Yeah. I'm not an interloper. You know, I'm a native of this country. I was born here. Now, I don't see myself as one thing or another thing. Um, I I see myself as you know all, a mixture of all those things because that's that's who we are, not yeah. just in Northern Ireland, but in other parts of Ireland as well. That's who our history is. Very much. It's only becoming an issue again now with the, the you know, big immigration that we're having. That we're yeah. that identity is being questioned again. What are we? We're a mixture. Where are we from? Where yeah. our parents come from? And all kinds of things. As far as I know from reading about it, there seem to be three, or maybe two plus kind of a half 
nationalities in Northern Ireland at the moment, but certainly three in the census form. There's Irish, British, and Northern Irish. Do you have any ideas or even a feeling about how you would distinguish the differences between those for people who do identify with those nationalities? I'd find them that, you know, you, okay, you have this kind of Republican idea where it's just Irish, nothing else, I'm Irish, totally reject mm-hmm. their Britishness. And then you have the other extreme in, you know, some loyalist unionist people where they've just... I'm not Irish at all. British, British and not yeah. Irish at all. But you have this um, rising um, number of people, and I would imagine, especially with young people, who have the Northern Irish identity, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that's mixed in with the British or not, you know, but I think that that is an, that is an increasing number of people who recognise Northern Ireland. I, I don't know if that's problematic too, because I personally don't think Northern Ireland's going to last. Unfortunately, I think um, I think it's, it's big statement. I think its days are numbered, and um, I I think if it celebrates a hundred years, I don't think it will celebrate another one. You know, is that based on? This Brexit, I'm sure you're referring to. Is there other I think reasons? it's well. I think it's Brexit is is the reason that we're discussing it at the minute, and um, and that that's worrying because it's it's kind of shifting everything that um, I think that was unnecessary. But also, we do know there's a change in the demographic, mm-hmm. and um, unions are going to be in the minority. Now, I don't think that would have been a problem if unionists politicians had handled it well and made Northern Ireland a welcoming place for people within the nicest yeah. community because I think change is hard for anybody yeah. and we saw that in Scotland and it's easier to stay with the status quo. A lot, a lot of a lot of Catholics even ones that I've met are certainly I think it's changed in the last couple of years because of Brexit but before that they weren't they weren't that bothered. No and I and I think mm. it would have been a much easier argument to persuade Catholics to sign up to the UK yeah than um to, uh-huh, yeah absolutely but i think sadly um that that argument is changing and i think the the unionist politicians have been very foolish and have alienated a lot of people and things like never 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 crocodiles you know mm-hmm. um, no irish language act all all these sorts of things that just rile people where i think they should have realized you know if you give a little you can get an awful lot back so i i think um plus the scandals, the RHI, all this sort of stuff. And just Northern Ireland, it's not working. It's just not working. Mm-hmm. And um, I think everybody's feeling very frustrated about that. So I don't know where we're going. I don't know where we're heading. We're going into very uncertain times, and and that's that's very worrying. It, it just is very, very worrying times. And, um, you know, when the peace process, the good sense of the Good Friday Agreement, it hasn't been ideal, but at least we have been, we've, we've had a peace of sorts, and um, and it, it would just be absolutely tragic if, if we lost that and we ended up back in, you know, a 1960s, 1970s situation again. That's the key worry for you, is that it'll be violence will come back. Yeah, 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 and I, I would rather have no change than end up in that that situation yeah that's 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 very fair and i think i think it, i would understand why people seem to be getting on with things and there seemed to be very little need for a change because everything was was working okay yeah, yeah. yeah but um i'm still very curious about the distinctions and differences people see in themselves that caused those problems in the first place now i know a large part of it was fear-based or, or based on historical ideas or whatever but say bet- between those two communities leaving the Northern Irish aside for the moment, seeing as that's a more modern phenomenon. What do you think are the key aspects that 
define Irish people. I'm not even talking about ideas of it that maybe someone from the outside would say. What do you think it is, are aspects that, that define the Irish personality, Irish characteristic? I think there's warmth mm-hmm. about Irish people. I suppose warmth, community, and also uh, custom. Um, you know, and this is what kind of interests me as well. I, I'm, I started the degree um, at Queen's there recently, and we're looking at its village has you know, folklore. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came up was um, Halloween, Eha Haina. So I'm reading these articles about how Eha Haina, how Halloween has been celebrated throughout Ireland for generations and generations. And, you know, they know that, you know, some of these customs were written down in medieval texts, so they knew that it was actually happening long before that because, you know, oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And... Some of these things are things that I did as a child in my nanny's house on the Newton Arch Road. Mm. And then somebody's going to tell me I'm not Irish. I'm doing things that have been happening in Ireland. You know, I'm doing Irish things. You know, I ate soda bread. I ate bloody very North Irish thing. Yeah, but that's, a regional, you know, that's a regional thing. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I, I, I use constructions that come from the Irish language and my Hiberno English and... You do think that those those characteristics are shared by people? Of course they are. Yeah. But we don't even know. We don't even you know, people just aren't aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't think about it, I suppose. Yet anybody, anybody coming from outside can see it. They yeah. can see it in my love. You know, I, I hear stories like I remember whenever the flag protests were happening here and somebody from this road was in a bar. In England somewhere, and they said, you know, it was all the trouble and not, and all they could hear from the people were saying, oh, it's bloody Irish, it was causing trouble. Something you talked about was that part of the reason for the divide was that the two sides of the border dropped their history with each other. Yeah. And this is something that I, as an Irish person, so we don't know that much about. Maybe we're a bit resistant to it. What 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 are the key characteristics of a of a British identity? If we as Irish people know anything about it, we would generally look at that in a negative way. What do you think are the key aspects of a, of a British You see, I think this is one of the problems because people talk about a British identity, but there isn't really a British identity because mm. the whole point of Britishness, it's um, this union of identities. Mm. And, and this is what I find very frustrating because, you know, if you're going to have a union, well, that's a union of different countries and different cultures, but then people here say, no, well, we're not different. Well, we are different because we have our own separate culture. Yeah. We have our own separate identity. And so we're part of that union. So, you know, we're not English. That's something everybody would agree on. People don't like the English. We're not English. But they love the Queen. They love the Queen. I can't, I can't, I can't get <laughs> no, I don't get that. I don't get that either. There's, there's this kind of, oh, it's just this sort of strange mixed up confusion. Like, you know, we're not Ireland, but we have the Church of Ireland Church and we have the Presbyterians in Ireland. We have the Methodists in Ireland. We have harps on the Irish Football Association, mm-hmm. but we're not Irish, you know. And the Green Shirt. And the Green Shirt, you know. And so the, it's this kind of, as I said, it is a bit like being in the asylum, you know, that that's not a phone. Yeah, it's a phone. No, it's not a phone. And everybody else goes, no, it's not a yeah, phone. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like, right, am I? Is it me? Is it them? You know? Gaslighting. It is, yeah. Yeah. And there, that, there is a lot of that. And I, and I think it's getting worse because as younger generations come up and they've heard nothing else, mm-hmm. why would they question it? Because that's that's what they've been told. So 
Is it getting worse and not better? I think it's getting, well, I think this is a class thing. Yeah. I think it's getting worse in working class areas. And I think middle class areas, people who have traveled, they've got a bit of education. I think a lot of young people, they're just not interested. They don't want to know. You know, they're interested in equal marriage. They're interested in uh, choice for women. They're interested in those sorts of things, mm-hmm. you know, the, the real issues, let us say. And, and I suppose a lot of them, whether they're, they're nationalist or unionist, can look across to the UK and say, hmm, they have those things over there. They have those things down the south. Why, why, why are we living in this backward bloody place? Um, but do you think there are, leaving the British thing out of what you explained very well, do you think there are key aspects or key parts to being Ulster Scots or Northern Irish or Ulster Protestant, whatever you want to call that? Well, I, I wouldn't call it Ulster Scots. I, I, I never heard of Ulster Scots. None of us ever heard of Ulster Scots until a few years ago, and then we've had this kind of thing set on us over Ulster Scots. I'm an Ulster person. I'm Ulttok. And, and I do think, um, being from Ulster, then we are different from somebody from Connemara, somebody from Dublin, even though we're all Irish. Um, we do have that different regional aspect to us. Um, I do feel that we're quite similar to Scotland, but we're not Scottish either. We're definitely not Scottish either. I do feel different. I feel very different from England. I, I felt I've only been to Wales a couple of times and I would feel probably more in tune with people in Wales and Scotland than I would in England. So I think there's definitely that kind of Celtic, Celtic thing going on. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But we are, I suppose, we, we are our own little space here you know I, I do feel we're different than people in the south mm-hmm. and um, well the hundred years of separation is never going to make that happen yeah, anyway yeah, so. yeah. I do understand that you want things to stay the same because of um, fear of the troubles coming yeah. back but do you think in an equal world where all things were even in this day and age United Ireland is a better idea or do you think it should inevitably this part should remain part of the UK I, or what do you think I, if I had a magic wand and I've said this a number of times here's what I would do and it's going to piss some people off and please other people probably piss more off than please anybody but I would make um, a federation of islands so we could have a united Ireland that, that's okay but my biggest fear I don't I don't fear united Ireland I fear the trouble that might come about with the united Ireland because I am Irish um, I'd be more interested how would it affect my pension what about the national health service you know I'm interested in practicalities but if I got up tomorrow morning and He's in charge instead of him. Really, what difference is that going to make to me? Why, why should I care? And I am Irish anyway, so there you are. But my big fear is separation from Britain. You know, because I do feel that we're a group of islands and I don't want to live in a world of anti-Britishness. I really don't. You know, I'm not English, but, you know, I, I do feel British. And um, and I, I, I just don't want that idea of, of being Ireland and will hate everybody else. I want to keep yeah. that connection to Scotland. I want to keep that connection to Wales. I want to keep that connection to England. So I believe that being sort of ruled, controlled by London, it's not working for Northern Ireland. It's not working for Scotland or Wales. It's not working for the north of England either. Mm. But if we had a, a sort of a... It's an acknowledgement of history. It's an acknowledgement of history. Shared troubled history. And, and things. But well, it's not, even it's, it's an acknowledgement geographically because we're one island, but we're also, was it 12 or 13 miles away from that other island yeah. there? So we are a group of islands, you know. And if we could find some way of respecting each other, working together for everybody's betterment, and as I say, having equality with each other, 
and say this little federation. I, I, I don't know. To me, that, that seems to be a good way to go. Now, I don't think the South is going to come back into the Commonwealth. I, I don't know how we could ever achieve it. But to me, that would seem to be the perfect solution, that you could keep close enough ties to the rest of Britain to keep the majority of the unionism satisfied, happy, not afraid, but also, you know, one island thing. What aspects of that shared history do you think are very important to keep? Because, I mean, coming from the south of Ireland, our remembering of those times is not great. So, so what aspect, and I do agree with you, there is a lot of the influence of our time in Britain can't be forgotten about because we were there for so long. What aspects of that do you think is very important to I, keep? Yeah, and I mean, I get that, that the history is very bad. I mean, I, I totally understand that. And, and I am Irish, so I feel that too. Um, but I just feel, I mean, here's the reality is I think it's the biggest group of immigrants, and I, I've read this somewhere, but the biggest group of immigrants in the south of Ireland are English. They were it's Polish now. Is it Polish now? They're, they're number two. Okay. So there's a massive amount of English people, mm. English farms, all the rest of it. So it's, you know, they're there. And, you know, if you think about the Irish people in England, massive number. So, you know, whether we like it or not, or, you know, the, the problems with history, People have come and crossed and went and over and, yep. you know, and marriages and settled and, you know, made their lives there. And there's thousands of English people who actually, their roots were Irish, you know, and vice versa. So I suppose, again, it's just that acknowledgement that even though a lot of the history is very bad, we are a group of islands. And if we could only, you know, move on from that, acknowledge the things maybe that went wrong, and move on from that. So I, I hope that we maintain the peace and I hope that we can build better relationships. Where it all ends up eventually, I, I don't know. I don't know and I don't... As long as it doesn't cause violence, I don't particularly care. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. So, good There you go. <laughs> Poor Linda, I think it's fair to say, had a very difficult year during 2020 after this interview took place. She has spoken publicly about getting very, very sick with COVID and how difficult it's been for tourists since as they've had to move everything online. But they're still going, they're still persevering and the demand is still there. And most importantly of all, she was in the news again last summer when she was named the president of East Belfast GA Club, which is the first GA club in that part of the city for 50 years. It could be fair to say that their first year in existence was a bit of a mixed year as well, because even though the club received bomb threats, over 400 people have already joined and the local rugby club in the area offered them the use of their facilities. Meaning that in a really weird way, even though the riots that we saw in the north at the start of this year show that in some ways it's still a really divided place in other areas. There are more and more people who are willing to cross the divide between the two communities. Obviously, that interview was carried out quite a while ago now, but based on what we've seen so far this year in Northern Ireland, it's not like that issue is going to be... uh, stop being relevant anytime soon and that brings us to the end of the first ever episode of it was all worth it if you've enjoyed it the next episode will be uploaded here shortly